From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. It, it just is such a, a misallocation and a misguided uh, policy, and it results in these families being separated. I don't know how this can be justified, either legally or morally. We spoke to Janet Napolitano this week. She's now the president of the University of California, a public school system which includes top universities like UCLA and UC Berkeley. But before that role, she was President Obama's former secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. We start with outrage here in the United States over immigration, the outcry... Nearly 2,000 children were separated from their families. We talked with Napolitano just as President Trump's DHS has come under fire for a policy of separating migrant children from their families when they cross the U.S.-Mexico border without papers. We asked her about the direction her former department was taking with immigration issues and what she sees for its future. We also discussed her tenure as the first woman to lead the University of California and the career that led to it. Stay tuned for our interview with Janet Napolitano. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you Real Talk with Women Bosses, asking, how did you make it? And what advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And follow me on Twitter at APalmerDC. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now, our interview with Janet Napolitano. Well, Janet, thank you so much for joining us. We are here today in Washington at the D.C. offices of the University of California system, where you are president, and you're actually the first female president of the UC system. That's right. Did my fact-checking there. Uh, Talk about the five years at the university, kind of in a broad sense, what your goals are, what you've seen changed, and maybe what you still are seeking to achieve. Well, I, you know, the University of California is such a... a unique institution. It's a public institution, but it's a research institution and at the highest levels. And so, you know, supporting healthy growth of our undergraduate population has been a goal, increasing uh, transfer students from the community colleges. And uh, in the meantime, we have uh, a goal of being ourselves uh, carbon neutral by 2025, which is a very aggressive goal, but uh, we feel it important that uh, we contribute uh, not only to the science that's required uh, where global warming is concerned, but also that we show by example how you adapt and how you uh, cope with it. So uh, we have that as a goal. Uh, you know, we have uh, a lot of support for our undocumented students. Um, uh, we sued the Trump administration over the rescission of DACA. Uh, and so far have been successful, and we're waiting to hear now from the Court of Appeals. But in the meantime, we've kept DACA alive, which is uh, which is great. Uh, and then we're just involved in so many other things. It's kind of hard to catalog them all. Right. Well, talk about that, DACA. We talked about it. We were at the uh, Women Rule Summit in L.A. Uh, a few weeks ago, and you said you were hoping that Congress would, would potentially step in and fix this problem. What's the goal of the lawsuit? 
The goal of the lawsuit uh, is uh, to enjoin the rescission of DACA. So uh, last fall, the attorney general got up and said, you know, DACA was terrible. It was an overexercise of executive power. Since it was done under my watch when I was secretary of DHS, uh, I, I must say, I took that a little personally uh, because we were very careful on the law and uh, uh, legal opinions were sought from a variety of sources that all confirmed the legality of DACA. Um, uh, but nonetheless, they just said, you know, boom, we're going to uh, rescind it. Uh, and so uh, we decided shortly thereafter that um, on, on the basis that we had thousands of undocumented students, most of whom were in DACA, uh, that we needed to sue to vindicate their rights. And so uh, uh, we achieved an injunction, which has meant that the students enrolled in DACA could remain enrolled in DACA and can and re-enroll in DACA. Uh, and uh, with that, they will also get the, the authorization to work, which so many need to do. Have you talked to Congress about what, you know, have you made the case to Congress, like, we're doing what we can over here in the legal system, but you really need to make a permanent fix? So, um, yes, we've been advocating uh, with members of the California delegation, with House leadership, with Senate leadership. Uh, I've joined with the head of the Cal State University system and the community college system. You know, we've done joint letters and pleas. And, and you know, what I see happening uh, is that DACA is being used as a bargaining chip, and it's being used as a bargaining uh, chip to enact some of the uh, more controversial um, uh, and, and, in my opinion, uh, wrongheaded um, policies of the administration, such as funding for a border wall. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, you know, Congress seems to be unable just to take up DACA, put it into statute, make it permanent, uh, and and just deal with that issue. All this other stuff gets wrapped in, and I think what gets lost in that uh, is 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 that there are thousands of young people's lives that are directly impacted, and. Uh, these are young people who are students, who've served in the military, who have started their own businesses. Uh, you know, they don't have any kind of criminal record. They've done, you know, everything we have asked of them. They've grown up in this country. They know this country is home. Uh, why can't we at least settle our troubled immigration policy and law with respect to them? Well, let's take a step back about how you got here uh, running one of the largest school systems before becoming president of the University of California. You were secretary for the Department of Homeland Security under Barack Obama. As we, as you said, before that, you were the governor of Arizona. And before that, you were the state's attorney general. No small feat considering you were a Democrat in a pretty red state of Arizona. You've also been involved in politics and government for a long time before getting into elected office. Um, we spoke in L.A., about how when you were still a lawyer in private practice, you'd been an attorney for Anita Hill, when she testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. Talk a little bit about that experience and that case. How do you look at it now, kind of with this modern lens of in the Me Too era? Well, I think um, uh, Anita Hill was really the, the first time many Americans had even heard the phrase sexual harassment uh, and its prevalence in the workplace. Uh, and she kind of ripped the Band-Aid off of that. 
um, nonetheless, the issue has persisted. Um, and uh, now with the Me Too moment, uh, movement, uh, you know, one can only hope that we're finally beginning to see the kind of cultural behavioral change uh, that needs to occur. You know, it's 2018. It's time to say, stop it. You know, <laughs> uh, this is not how you deal with uh, people in the workplace. Uh, and it's not how you use your power in the workplace. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I, I think um, what we need to be concerned about is that uh, the Me Too movement um, loses its its power and its potency, that um, uh, it it um, uh, it get it gets lost in 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 the noise, and it's too important uh, for that to occur. In 1991, did you have any sense that Anita Hill was going to be this kind of icon for women fighting against sexual harassment, or was it just you know this was an important case and you wanted to take it on? So I got involved in the case. The senior partner at my law firm. Uh, uh, was a man named John Frank, and he was uh, an expert in Supreme Court nominations. He'd been a Yale law professor, had moved to Arizona, uh, where I was practicing, uh, um, because he had uh, severe asthma. Uh, And so when the whole Anita Hill um, issue arose and was made public, uh, and, and the Judiciary Committee, you know, scheduled a hearing... Well, the people around uh, Anita said, you know, you need some lawyers around who've actually handled contested hearings. And so they reached out to John, who reached out to me. And, you know, I still remember he came around the corner in, my, in, 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 in the office and said, uh, we've been asked to go represent Anita Hill. Are you in? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we took a red eye to Washington. We met our client, Anita Hill, uh, the next day. It was the first time we'd met her. Uh, we had um, about two days to prepare for this hearing. It was That's a, so insane a, to think it about. It was insane. It was a blitz, uh, and you know the the committee was was really um, just terrible uh, uh, in how they uh, uh, treated. Um, her um, in the pre-hearing process, uh, and then during the hearing itself, one would one would hope that in the, in the current day, uh, that that would not recur. Um, did I think that this would become an iconic moment? I'm not sure I did, but I did know that it was you know politically uh, so powerful, um, and uh, I'd never been even close to something with that kind of public attention. Uh, it, it, it was an eye-opener. You know, it led to 1992, which is the so-called year of the woman. One would hope we'd get more than one year. Uh, um, but a number of members of the Senate and the, and the House um, were elected in that year and are still in the Senate and the House. Um, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee actually has women members on it. Um, so... Uh, one would think and and hope that that issue would be handled differently today. Did you ever talk to Joe Biden about, I mean, he was obviously kind of, was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time and has been accused of being, you know, kind of setting a pretty skeptical tone uh, for the rest of the members. You know, obviously you worked with Biden in the Obama administration. Is that something you ever over the years talked to him about at all? We never discussed it. And, you know, uh, I know and like the former vice president very much. Um, uh, you know, he was active in the passage of VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. He's been active in other uh, uh, similar type issues. 
Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the combined uh, weight of, uh, you know, the fact that the members themselves were very unfamiliar with this topic. They were very, they were obviously very uncomfortable uh, uh, with having to uh, uh, drill down uh, into it, although they didn't have to drill down the way they did. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, uh, the fact that uh, Thomas had already been through uh, one, one set of hearings and uh, there was enormous pressure to uh, move to uh, a committee vote so they could move the nomination to the floor. Uh, you know, I, I think it was um, just not set up to do a, a full and fair exploration of the issues. So after 1991, fast forward a couple of years, in 1993, you were appointed U.S. Attorney for the District of Arizona by President Clinton. And it was after that you decided to make a run for Attorney General for Arizona. You told me last month that some media were skeptical of your run for office, kind of quote unquote, as a woman. Were there any other hurdles you faced when it came to your gender on how you were treated on the campaign trail or the office or tactics you used to just kind of move past that? Well, um, so I ran for attorney general um, in 1998, uh, and I'd been the U.S. attorney for a little over four years. I resigned in order to to run. It was an open seat. I was 39 going on 40. And to your question, uh, were there other differences in like how I had to campaign and what have you? Well, um, I I think you always have to be uh, concerned with wardrobe. Uh, I, I, I remember being pulled aside by, uh, an older woman who, uh, was a big supporter and, and basically said, you know, Janet, uh, you need to add some color to your wardrobe. You dress too much like a lawyer. And I was like, well, I am a lawyer and I'm running for a legal job. And, uh, nonetheless, that's when bright colors and jewel tones started entering my, uh, my wardrobe. Um, uh, ever present jewel tones. Oh, the ever present. And fortunately they're in my color wheel, so um, we can use them. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, you have things, things like that. But they're, uh, in my mind, um, ephemeral. I mean, they're just kind of things that that uh, uh, that you do. And um, I think um, the the challenge for candidates, and especially for women candidates, um, is uh, to be credible and to be persuasive, and uh, you know, to convince voters that you are going to do a better job for them. Uh, than your opponent is going to. One of the risks you took was when you ran for Arizona governor, it was a very close race. Very close. You won by barely a percentage point. What do you think was the reason for your success there? Was there a lesson that you took away from it? That was a really tough campaign. I was running against a, a former Republican uh, congressman who was uh, really the Republican Party's designated um, heir to the to the throne. Um and it had been quite a while since Arizona had elected a Democrat as uh, governor. Uh, and, um, you know, by then I had a track record. I'd been a statewide elected official. I'd been the attorney general. We, we had done some very good things while I was AG. People liked what we had done. So I had a track record to run on. I wasn't just coming out of the ether uh, and running for governor. 
Um, and I and I think in terms of, of that, running for executive office uh, may be a little different than running for a legislative office. Uh, you know, when you're an executive, people know you've got to make decisions, you've got to manage, you know, you've got to set an agenda, uh, and you've got to deal with tough uh, tough issues. Uh, one thing, when you're in legislative office, it's a very different type of role. Um, you know, you're, you're introducing, you're debating, you know, you're overseeing, um, but you're not necessarily deciding in, in that same way. And I, I wonder whether that's one of the reasons why we don't see more women today running to be uh, governor or indeed even attorney general. Mm-hmm. When it comes to overcoming deeply personal challenges when you're such a public face, I wanted to ask uh, a little bit about your battle with breast cancer. I think some of the women we've spoken to this past year have talked about their hesitancy in discussing kind of personal struggles they go through because they want to maintain a, a strong public face. They don't want to get too personal. They, you know, those are kind of be put in a category of, oh, this is something that women would talk about, but a man might not. How did you deal with that? So um, my first brush with breast cancer uh, was in the year 2000. And um, because of the kind of cancer uh, I had and uh, where it was, um, uh, I had to have a mastectomy. Um, and, um, you know, I was the sitting attorney general. Uh, and so you have that competition between what's the public entitled to know and how do you protect your privacy? Because, you know, you need a little space, right? Uh, so we made the decision that uh, I would check into the hospital under uh, a pseudonym. Uh, and once the surgery was done, uh, my office would put out a, a press release. Uh, and that's what we did. And, um, it, you know, it was the public reaction was so supportive. Uh, I heard from hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of people who uh, either had gone through breast cancer or had a mother who had or an aunt or a sister. Um, uh, so, I got a lot of support that way. And indeed, it wasn't long after my mastectomy that I spoke at the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. And, you know, I had an afternoon spot on like the second day of the convention. So, you know, it's this big hall was in uh, Staples Arena. And you know, it's basically empty. The delegates aren't in there. But the Arizona delegation was there, and they were cheering me on. And, um, you know, I could barely still, you know, stand up, uh, as anybody who's had that kind of surgery knows. Uh, um, it, it, it takes a while to physically come back. And uh, But I, I felt just so uh, empowered by that experience. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, I had a recurrence of uh, breast cancer in 2016, uh, on the same side where I'd had my mastectomy, which is really rare, but happens, which is why you still have to get mammograms on both sides for anybody who's listening. Um, and uh, this time I had to also do the, the chemo and radiation. And, and again, uh, uh, I tried to keep it, you know, very uh, quiet, very private. Um, uh, but, you know, once people knew, they were very supportive. So, uh, it's, it's just one of those things that, unfortunately, far too many um, uh, women need to go through. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about your kind of your transition to federal government when you became the head of the Department of Homeland Security. What were some of the major challenges as a woman in that space? Well, in 
law enforcement and insecurity, um, uh, those are still, you know, male-dominated professions. And so, uh, um, you know, it, it wasn't infrequent, for example, when I was U.S. attorney or attorney general that I would call a meeting of all the local law enforcement heads, and I'd be the only woman in the room. I'd be running the meeting, but I'd be the only woman at the table. Uh, um, uh, at, at Homeland Security, uh, we had uh, a number of women who came in with the Obama administration. Uh, my uh, deputy secretary was a woman. We had uh, several uh, undersecretaries and assistant secretaries uh, who were women. So we, we kind of uh, broke up that block. But nonetheless, uh, when you looked at the uh, uh, membership of, uh, say, the Border Patrol or uh, Customs, uh, you know, our big law enforcement um, agencies, you know, they were still predominantly male. And I, I really don't think about the gender issue in, in that context. I think you have to go in there, you have to establish your credibility, that you know what you're talking about, that you're willing to listen, uh, take guidance, um, and then that you're willing to make the tough calls that leadership requires. Uh, so, uh, you know, I never uh, felt any gender-based resistance in that way. Why did you choose to leave your post? So I was uh, um, Secretary of Homeland Security throughout uh, President Obama's first term, uh, and he asked me to, to stay on. And uh, I really thought um, if I stay longer than a year, then I pretty much need to stay the full two terms. And, you know, the, the DHS role um, is a little understood role, but it's a massive job, and uh, you really are on call um, all the time. Uh, and um, I, I thought it would be better if I left, you know, within the first year of the second term to give the president the opportunity to have my successor nominated, confirmed, and have enough time to do what he or she wanted to do. So, um, I, I told the president that uh, I thought I had another year in me, and then uh, uh, it would be time for a replacement. And uh, uh, and I got to thinking about what I'd like to do next. And uh, I thought, you know, higher education, because, you know, I was raised in a higher education uh, family. My dad was on the faculty at the University of New Mexico. Um, I loved working on higher ed issues when I was governor. So I, I th and I wanted to move back west. Um, so uh, I thought, you know, running a small college out west wouldn't that be a nice gig? <laughs> um, and not soon, not long thereafter, um, I got a call from a headhunter who was working with the University of California, and they were looking for a new president. Not, and not, not would quite I be the small, interested? Not that quite the, the small, small school. went out of the. <laughs> no, that, that's right. It's the largest public research university in the country, if not the world. And. Um, uh, nonetheless, um, uh, I got called and uh, offered the position, and um, uh, you know I took it, and and I've been uh, happily engaged ever since. How did the president take it when he found out from you that this was the job you were taking? Oh, the president was great. Uh, uh, when they when the university called and offered me the position, uh, I. I uh, said I'd like to accept, but first I need to talk with my boss, i.e. the President of the United States. So um, we had managed to keep under wraps uh, that 
I was involved in this search, um, uh, prim primarily by doing everything verbally. And uh, so I called Dennis McDonough, the president's chief of staff, and uh, uh, we told him what was going on. I'd like to meet with the president. So he arranged for me to meet with uh, President Obama uh, the next day. And um, uh, uh, so it was the end of the day. I'm in the Oval, uh, just myself. Uh, the president comes in, just himself. Uh, very, very rare. Um, uh, to, to be in the Oval without staff around, et cetera. Um, and he says, so, Janet, you're, you're really leaving us. And I said, uh, yes, Mr. President. And he said, uh, to be president of the University of California. And I said, well, that's the offer on the table. And um, uh, he said, the whole thing? And I said, yeah, the whole thing. And he looked at me and he said, expletive. I'd take that job, <laughs> um, and which was a very gracious way um, for him to handle it. And I think uh, we then talked about the opportunity um, I had to help educate the next generation and what a great mission that is. And it is. It's a great mission to have. Um, but, uh, yeah, so after I told him, I stayed on at DHS for a few more months, and then I was off and running. Let's turn uh, to present day, and obviously we spoke earlier about DACA and what you're doing with the university system on immigration there, but clearly in the news right now is what President Trump and his administration is doing uh, along the border and breaking up, uh, separating migrant family families there, which President Trump kind of keeps falsely claiming as a democratic policy. What's your take on what's happening right now? There's been a lot of outrage that's kind of starting to bubble up. Yeah, it was not a democratic fam policy to break up families. Um, uh, that, that's just wrong. Um, uh, what's happening at the border is a function of this new zero tolerance policy that they will criminally prosecute everybody who uh, crosses the border um, as opposed to putting them into uh, civil uh, deportation proceedings, um, which is uh, – primarily what uh, we did, unless they were repeat violators. And, you know, when you're um, uh, in civil, uh, uh, families remain together. Um, uh, they uh, are in family detention uh, centers um, and uh, then are, uh, are released within uh, a few weeks at the most um, uh, once they get uh, the order from the immigration court about when they need to uh, come back. And, you know, that's, that's the way we handled, I'd handled it. Under the zero tolerance policy, um, uh, the adults go into the jurisdiction of the U.S. Marshal. And uh, the marshals don't have facilities that are capable of taking children. And so uh, the children then become virtual, unaccompanied minors, um, even though they are accompanied. Um, and uh, while uh, the full weight of the federal government goes to prosecuting and imprisoning uh, their parents, uh, uh, they're turned over to the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, uh, and if a family member can't be located um, uh, to take them, then they're put into foster care. Uh, and and the family that crossed is broken up. Uh, you know, I 
you know, I think the so-called zero tolerance policy um, is the wrong way to go. Um, you know, and they don't mean zero. What they mean by zero tolerance is uh, uh, prosecuting everybody criminally. So they're going to um, fill the U.S. courts and the border districts uh, with uh, what are very simple one-time immigration violations that can be handled through a simple uh, uh, deportation as, as a civil matter, an administrative matter. Uh, uh, and instead, you know, they're going to um, uh, then uh, subject these individuals to time in prison. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, federal taxpayer will pay for that. Uh, the U.S. attorney's offices, who will now have to prosecute uh, these uh, parents, um, will have to uh, move resources from other kinds of cases they were doing. So uh, they're going to have to move resources from cases involving narcotics smuggling rings because there are big drug cases along the border. They have to remove resources from that uh, to handle these uh, simple immigration uh uh, one-time crossers who, uh, again, can be handled administratively. It, it just is such a, a misallocation and a misguided uh, policy, and it results in these families being separated. And, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I don't know how this can be justified either legally or morally. Do you think there's a resolution besides just kind of going back to the policy that was at hand before? Or how can – do you have any kind of advice for DHS and the president about potentially what they should be doing? They should go back to the way it was. Um, uh, we were not letting uh, individuals who were apprehended um, go. I mean, I, they use the term catch and release uh, to imply that we would catch them and then release them back across the border and they would then just try to cross again. No, they were put into administrative proceedings for deportation so that if they came across again, they would have a record and then they would be handled differently. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the notion that you're going to somehow create a deterrent uh, to illegal immigration through this kind of policy, we've seen this before, and it, it just doesn't work. And it's, it's cruel, uh, you know, to take a five-year-old away from uh, her mother, uh, to take a, a baby who's breastfeeding away from her mother. I, I mean, that, that's, that's not that's not who we are as a country. And I'm pleased to see, I must say, that the outcry about this is coming from all ends of the political spectrum. You know, everybody knows that, you know, setting up tent cities to house the children who have been separated um, from their uh, parents, you know, there's just something fundamentally wrong with this. Are there things that you think DHS should be focused on right now that it's not? You know, I think, um, you know, it's hard to say. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the difficult role that the DHS secretary plays. Um, uh, you, you, know, you have the counterterrorism uh, agenda. You have uh, disaster response and disaster management. Um, you've got uh, biosafety. You, you, you've got uh, cybersecurity. And I, and I guess one area... Uh, uh, that I would 
hope uh, the department is really focused on is cybersecurity. Um, uh, I think that requires a whole of government approach. Uh, I I think um, uh, I'm particularly concerned about uh, uh, continued interference in our electoral system, which is to me a direct attack on our democracy. Uh, and uh, I think it, it needs, from what I can perceive anyway, it needs a much stronger, more coordinated approach led by the Department of Homeland Security, but across the U.S. government. All right. I want to finish up with a look towards the future. The California primary is just wrapped up and your state is going to have a new governor come November. What are your thoughts on the races uh, up in this election this year? I know there's been some tension between the UC system and California Governor Jerry Brown. Do you have any outcome you're really hoping for? Well, I think uh, um, Gavin Newsom is obviously uh, uh, the better candidate to be the next governor of California. He's got great experience. He um, was a great leader of the city of San Francisco when he was mayor. Um, he's been the lieutenant governor um, for uh, with Jerry Brown, so he is familiar with the state system. Uh, and I think his uh, policies and his values marry up better with uh, the California populace than his opponents do. Um, and, you know, uh, um, I hope that uh, and expect that we'll be able to work with him very closely in terms of support for the University of California. It really is one of the crown jewels of California. So you've been at the job for about five years. You see presidents don't usually last all that long in the post. You've had your own fair share of difficulties with some negative press about budget transparency. Any changes on the front that we should know about, or are you planning on uh, sticking around the UC system for quite a while longer? Well, I, I won't define quite a while, <laughs> but uh, I have uh, no present intention to, to leave. Um, uh, we have a lot of challenges, a lot of opportunities. It's a, it's a great mission. You know, 42% of our undergraduates are the first in their families to attend college. I mean, that's a remarkable number. Uh, we are an opportunity maker. Uh, and so to be part of that is something very special. So uh, I hope to continue for a while. All right. Well, Janet, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. In coming weeks, we'll bring you conversations with actress Bellamy Young and Tamara Mellon, the founder and former creative director of the Jimmy Choo Shoe Line. You don't want to miss any of those episodes, so hit that subscribe button, and thanks for listening.